Neo Before Blog presents Neo Before Pod. Hello and welcome to the Neil Before Pod interview segment. I'm your host Craig and I had the pleasure of catching up with actor Noah Averbach-Katz who recently played the Andorian Rin in Star Trek Discovery. We talk about proposing to Mary Wiseman, wearing heavy makeup and much, much more. Enjoy. I'm delighted to be joined on Neil Before Pod with Noah Averbach-Katz who recently played the Andorian Rin in Star Trek Discovery. So how are you doing? Welcome aboard. Doing great. Thanks for having me, Craig. I'm happy to be here. Always fun to talk Star Trek and everything. So happy to be here. Well, it's my pleasure to have you here. So can't wait to let you indulge your desire to talk Star Trek. (laughs) So how's the lockdown COVID situation been for you wherever you are? Mary and I were in New York for a while, kind of when the most intense part of the early March lockdown was happening. So that really sucked and was miserable. And now we're up in Toronto as Mary is shooting season four. So it's just kind of more of the same. I think everybody in places that are taking COVID seriously is having a pretty similar experience with the just, just sort of trying to figure out what the new guideline is, where we can go, where we can't go, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, overall it has sucked, but I think it sucked for everyone. So I share that in common with many, many people. (laughs) Just have to make the best of it. There's nothing else for it, really. Yeah. Exactly. Plus up in Toronto, it'll be more sensible than it would be in the US, I would think. Yes, definitely in certain parts of the U.S., absolutely. And, you know, Mary's lucky that they're able to keep working and shooting and things could be a whole lot worse for us. So yeah. all considered, I consider us very, very lucky. Well, that's good. So just a bit on your background, how did you get into the crazy world of acting? Where did you get your start? What made you pursue it? Well, that's such a good question. Where did it all go wrong, Craig? <laughs> My mom was, she's not an actor or, you know, in the arts, but she always was kind of nudging me into it, signing me up for stuff. And it just sort of was one of those places where I just excelled. You know, some people just have a natural thing for soccer or, excuse me, football or baseball or math or whatever. And this was just one of those places where it just came naturally in a way. And I just sort of stuck with it. I've been really, really fortunate, especially in my early life, to have some really inspiring teachers in high school and in undergrad at UC Santa Cruz and just really fostered a love for it. And then when I was graduating from UC Santa Cruz, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And I was like, well, I don't know, maybe I'll just apply for graduate schools. And uh, it's just sort of on a whim because I had a professor, a mentor who had gone there. I applied for Juilliard, not really knowing much. And I got in there. And from there, it was just sort of the rest is history. I met Mary there. That's sort of where you can start to build a professional career outside of an amateur career. So that's sort of how it all happened, just sort of one step after another. And then here I am. (laughs) Eventually on Star Trek and heavy makeup. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All roads end there eventually, I guess. (laughs) You know, I never would have seen it coming, but now looking back, it somehow makes sense. Yeah. And when you're not working, what is it you like to do? What is it you like to watch? What other hobbies do you have? I see you're in a D&D 
so I group with the other Trek actors. D&D has definitely taken up a huge section of my personal hobby time. I've been playing not for very long. I've only really played for maybe three years now. I was introduced by another actor friend who I met at Juilliard. We were in, in school together. And yeah, I've been pretty deep on that and have my own other two home games in which I'm a player. And then I've started DMing this Star Trek game, which has been just so much fun. Anthony, Mary, Emily, Blue, Ian have just really taken to it. And it's just such a great way to stay connected during lockdown when you can't be around each other and not just kind of sit around on Zoom and bemoan how crappy things are. It really gives you a place to connect, to create new stories. I feel like that's such a difficult thing in lockdown is you don't have those moments to go out and have an adventure with a friend or create a story with a friend, something you guys share in, because the story kind of stays the same day to day. So having this ability to kind of create a shared story with some people um, has just been a real gift. So most of my time is spent playing D&D, thinking about D&D, listening or watching actual play at D&D. And then, you know, the rest of the time is just like sort of sitting and looking out of the window. <laughs> as long as it's an eventful view, then why not? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And is there anything nerdier than playing Dungeons and Dragons with a bunch of Star Trek actors? I can't imagine anything more. It's peak nerd in a way. It's just full on. You can't hold it anymore. It's just like a super nerdy combination, which I think is super fun. And I think it's kind of why people have responded to it. I'm I'm super surprised. You know, Anthony has been putting out these updates on Twitter, whatever, and people are like so into it, have been so sweet and supportive and excited and I don't know. It just feels really good. It's a fun little added bonus to the whole thing. Yeah. Do a charity live stream one of these days of just you playing a game. I'm sure people would love to watch it. I've thought about that. I kind of want to keep the main home game just sort of this own little bubble because we get so little time to connect with each other that it's so nice to have this little thing where we can all just kind of get to know each other and hang out. But Ian brought up such a great idea, which is live streaming a one shot for charity, Mm. doing something like that. Also, maybe giving opportunities for other Star Trek people in Discovery or out of Discovery to kind of hop in on something. So I, I think there's definitely... Uh, Maybe not right away, but probably sometime down the line. I would imagine, even if it's not live stream, maybe a recorded with a live chat going at the same time, something like that. I would love to be able to kind of maintain the integrity of our home game and it being its own little private world, but also get to continue to share it with everybody. I think finding that balance would be amazing. Yeah. So watch the space on that one. Yeah. So what is your relationship to Star Trek? You said you love talking about it so have you been a fan for ever or is it yeah. a recent thing or somewhere in between i have grown up on star trek my mom was a massive star trek fan i can't remember a time like everybody always asks oh when were you introduced to star trek and i think just like at birth like it was just you know there i grew up watching voyager with my mom the mid to later seasons of voyager were sort of picking up when i was tv watching age and then when i was like 12 13 my mom would hold these we call them star trek parties which were essentially just live watch parties before that was a thing with me and all my 13 year old friends of enterprise because that was the show that was going concurrently when i was that age and she would make a little quiz for all the kind of random trivia in the episode. And whoever got the most trivia right would win a little Star Trek prize, like an action figure or a cup or a magazine or something. So all of my friends were doing that and she would drag me off to conventions and we would go to the big conventions, but we'd also go to like the small 
you know, Marriott basement conventions, which were so bizarre and just very, very fun. And that just sort of continued. In undergrad, I did a syndication vindication episode of a Star Trek episode that a close friend of mine directed. And I played Riker and stepped over the chair and did all that stuff. And people just freaking loved it, which was so fun. And then in graduate school, I didn't do too much, but I was able to sneak away and go to the first or second Blu-ray remastered edition premiere at one of the Regal Cinemas in Times Square. And LeVar Burton was there looking fabulous in this amazing suit, which was so much fun. And then, you know, it just was sort of on the background. It wasn't like I was watching everything, but it was also sort of a dormant period. It was like the new Trek movies had sort of come to a halt after Into Darkness or whatever. Um, And then Mary got on the show and it all restarted in a pretty big way. (laughs) So do you have a favorite series? Obviously you grew up on Voyager, so was that carried through or did you find a favorite in one of the other ones later on? It's such a good question. It's hard to really pick a favorite because they all hold sort of a different place in my heart. Obviously Discovery is my favorite for some (laughs) reasons. But of the older Trek... As much as I grew up watching Voyager, I was a little young to really assimilate it, if you will. So I think obviously Next Gen is like really the bread and butter. There's so much there. So much is just completely weaved into me and my identity and my family's identity. (laughs) But I think secretly, even though I haven't really done like a true rewatch, I think secretly Enterprise might be my favorite series other than Discovery. It's so weird. It's so campy. Some of those episodes are just so bonkers that I just love it. And I feel like it also, in a weird way, is very representative of a time in which I was growing up. You know, it was on UPN and you could feel their hands sort of guiding it in this weird direction and stuff. And I don't know. It still speaks to me in a very bizarre way that's probably unhealthy or says something about my broken psyche, but I I definitely have a place in my heart for it. And it's finding a lot of love now in the streaming era as well. People are discovering it and enjoying it. I I don't know what it is about it. I think when you watch it the first time, especially if you're watching it in the moment, you're like, what the hell is this? Like, what is going on? (laughs) Especially coming from Voyager and Deep Space Nine, especially. It's just such a different vibe but then when you rediscover it and you're coming back without this pressure of it having to be a certain kind of star trek the light touch they have the sort of fun and goofiness that they have with it 15 years later i feel like it is a little bit of a comfort food in a different (laughs) way as opposed to next gen or ds9 sort of being this warm blanket you can just disappear in which of course is great enterprise sort of feels like you're crazy uncle who's going to take you out drinking to all the local bars <laughs> in a small town you know so it's fun for, for a very different reason yeah next gen's always my star trek it resonates most with me and still does but i love all of it there's not a star trek thing i don't like so love that i love that yeah. you can't go wrong it's picking your children they're all great there's yeah. always something fine unique about each one and i think that's what makes it so fun yeah definitely and you kind of married into the star trek family without even realizing it. I would say Mary is the one who married into the Star Trek. (laughs) We were there and she knew this all before. And then, yeah. And then really she became Star Trek royalty 
overnight, my mom was immediately sold. That was done. She was completely on board. So it was very, very bizarre and amazing in the way in which that kind of all played out for us. Cool. I'm sure people want to hear about your wedding. So what was that like? (laughs) The wedding was beautiful. I'm so glad we got it done before COVID happened, February. (laughs) 2019. We had to keep it very un-Star Trek themed just so that Star Trek would not envelop the wedding. We had to keep it about us and what we were doing. We had this beautiful location up in the winter in upstate New York in Woodstock. It's this amazing location. Everybody was there. But you know what was great was that, you know, in Star Trek terms, so much of the Discovery cast was there. They provided so much life and energy to it. They were having such a good time. And I think it was a great communal experience for the cast who could make it of just seeing how life happens outside of set in the off season and feeling like that's like a moment of connection for everybody a moment of connection with mary getting to see because uh, the cast is amazing they're so sweet they're great people but at the end of the season everybody kind of goes their different ways which is much needed you know everybody needs a break but i think it was special moment for people to really let down their hair, have a good time, and connect about something other than work, which I think anybody can relate to in any kind of work setting. Having that moment where you can get to know people outside of the workplace setting, not talking about work, not thinking about work, not griping about work is such a connective experience. So I think it was really awesome for that. And I know I felt that way. Yeah. And was it a band or a DJ? It was a DJ. We had a DJ. Had a DJ. I think too cold for a band. (laughs) (laughs) And what was the proposal like? I know that people will be interested in it. Oh, yeah. I went all out on this proposal. I asked her dad. Dad said, yes, very traditional. Not like us, not traditional at all. But I thought, let's get everybody on board. So basically what I did was we were living in New York at the time. And I essentially set up a scavenger hunt. And at each location on the scavenger hunt, I would bring her to kind of a different important location to us. So the old apartment where I lived and then the bar where we went on our first date and then a place where we had breakfast all the time and another, you know, different spots. And at each spot, I had sort of an escalating series of people who were important in her life to meet her and kind of give her the clue to go to the next spot. So it was one of our friends and then all of her close friends, her brothers, my parents, and then her parents. And then she came back to where we were living and everybody was there. And then that was where the proposal happened. I rented out half of a bar and then like all of our friends were there for like a big engagement party. So she was totally floored. Her family flew in, my family flew in, and it was just such a fun experience. And (laughs) so at each spot, I also, there was some not Star Trek, but some nerd culture. She's big on the original Lord of the Rings movies. So one okay. of the stops had the necklace that Aragorn gets. Oh, no, no. The necklace that Frodo gets with the light in it. Is that right? Yeah. Frodo's the necklace? That's right. And then another one was like some Miyazaki stuff because she loves Miyazaki. Another one was Hunger Games. So it was just like things, media, nerd stuff pop culture stuff she likes to kind of guide her on her way. But I did have to convince my mom not to wear a silly Fertility t-shirt until the next day when we all went out to breakfast as a family. But yeah, it was really, really special and exciting. And yeah, I sort of really backed her into a corner. Her whole family was there. What you can say now? (laughs) No pressure. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds great. Sounds very unforgettable. 
Yes, that was the idea. You know, how are you going to back out of this now? Yeah. <laughs> Top it. Yeah. So your casting as Rin, how did that come about? Did your wife tell you that they were looking for someone for a particular role? And I had met Alex Kurtzman early on and kind of showed him all the photos of me in my Trek stuff. And he loved it. And I showed him a video I took of my mom weeping when we told her that Mary was going to be on the show. And he loved that. And so I just kind of got to know him a little bit. And I was talking with him and somebody from CBS came over and was like, oh, I know you. I know you. Where do you know you from? You were on this episode of The Good Fight. And so he kind of like took note of that. It's like, oh, this is, you know, also an actor. He's been on CBS All Access before Star Trek even aired. So from there, I auditioned for Spock, which funnily enough, the script they gave, it was sort of like a dummy script. And it was for an Andorian named Tom, (laughs) uh, which was very funny, although... Reading it very quickly, I was like, this is not Andorian. This is a Vulcan. I am 100% sure. And I'm like 99% sure this is going to be Spock. So I auditioned for that. They liked my tape. I think they cast the right person in that role. I think Ethan's fantastic. And I'm so glad that I don't have to deal with the kind of pressure that he has to deal with bring Spock <laughs> back to life. But I think he's doing an incredible job. And they made an excellent decision with that. But then... This role just kind of popped up. I had an audition for it. I was in Toronto while Mary was shooting season three. And I flew back to New York and auditioned at the CBS studios there and booked it. And that was kind of that. And I was just like, oh, I did it. I'm on the show, I guess. That's it. (laughs) And you join a very elite club of people that wear full makeup. So funny you know immediately i reached out to ken mitchell i reached out to mary chifo and i reached out to doug jones to kind of get their take on how this makeup is because what is really different with the makeup in this generation of star trek is that it's the full face prosthetic so a lot of the time in the older stuff you'd have a forehead glued on or something on the cheekbones, but the mouth would be exposed except for really really intense alien makeup yeah. like this or something. But in this, it's a full face prosthetic all the way up to your lips, covering your lips. It's in your nose. It's in your eyes. Your ears are totally covered. Like it's completely covered. I did a test. I was like, how the heck do you act in this stuff? I have no idea. So I reached out to those three, you know, me, Mary Chifo and I and my Mary all went to Juilliard together. We were in the same class together. So I reached out to her right away and she had amazing advice and Ken had amazing advice. And then just being around Doug, what he does is completely unbelievable. You know, the saying he does it backwards in high heels, Doug literally doing it in high heels without the heel. So I don't really know how he does what he does, but just talking to him and learning from him was so, so useful. And I was actually at a cast party. We had all gotten together just having drinks in a house. And David, who plays Linus, came up to me and he's like, so you're crazy too. And I was like, huh? Like, what do you mean? He's like, well, like all of us prosthetic people, we're all insane. You can only do this stuff. You can only be caught inside this squid, which is devouring your head for 12 hours if you're totally crazy. So you must be crazy and welcome to the club. So I felt very, very honored by that, that I had been brought into the prosthetic fold by one of the masters, David, as well, because he really knows what he's doing as well in this stuff. So I felt very special to be welcomed into that prosthetic club. And how long did it take to apply and then take off? So for 306, it took five and a half hours to put that on. Two reasons it took so long is we were at early stages. So the thing that I didn't realize about these masks 
is that they take a mold of your face and they make these kind of printouts of the rubber, which are kind of multiple pieces of detached rubber, which they glue on your face and then glue together. So almost different parts coming around different parts of your head. It's not something you just kind of put over your head and slide into. And when it's printed, it's basically that mask. It's just sort of a blue wash with some texture on it in terms of the topography. There's that raised cheekbone, but it just looks like somebody dipped it very quickly in light blue paint. Mm -hmm. So they have to completely paint the face, all of the texture, all of the detail, all of the different colors you would see on any face, maybe a little darker around the eyes or on the corner of the lips or something, the dirt, it's all hand painted on. And it takes a very long time to give it that sort of realistic look. So that takes a really long time, especially early on when you're still trying to figure out what looks good, what's right, what's the process we should go to. And then the other thing in 306 is that I had this kind of stubbly beard. And that beard is not a complete unit that's put on the face. It's glued on strand by strand. And there are these long strands of hair, which they actually have to cut up into a stubble. So that took a very, very long time to do. And they thankfully let me shave for 308, which is upcoming. I think it's no spoilers. If I, I think there's images out there with with the beard because I think they're like, this is just taking so long. I think getting rid of that beard probably cut an hour and a half off of the makeup time for the next episode. So yeah, long time. What do you do to pass the time when you're in the chair? Do you just, just talk, you listen just, to music? And- you sit there, you can sort of have a conversation, but I think the prosthetics people appreciate it if you don't because they're inside of your mouth all the time or they're on the side of your cheeks so if you're talking they can't really do it so you sit there you can hear music but your ears are completely covered so you can't really listen to anything there's maybe music going on over the speakers or whatever mike our prosthetics guy who was amazing he was put on this same mix and i could sort of time out how far along we were in the process by which song was coming up Um, But you can't like listen to a podcast or anything because you can't really hear anything and you can't read anything because they're working around your eyes and they're inserting those contacts into your eyes. So you literally just sit there. (laughs) I guess it gets easier the longer it goes on, I suppose. Oh, it does. But also it doesn't because at the beginning, you're so excited. Just like, hell yeah, I'll do anything. I'll sit here for the rest of my life. I don't care. But by a little bit on, you're like, oh my God. I have to come back and do this tomorrow too. It becomes actually more and more daunting as you continue. But I think that's why David was like, you must be insane because there's a certain level of insanity to just sit there for five and a half hours where somebody just continually jabs something into your face or applies adhesive to your eyelids. And you were an Andorian. Is there any other alien you would have loved to be made up as? Oh, well, I love being an Andorian because for as iconic and as well-known as they are, there's very, very little lore about them, which I think is great. Obviously, so much of it comes from Jeffrey Combs and Shran. I mean, basically all of it. So that is so fun to be part of a species that is still being discovered. I think in that sense, actually being a Kelpian would be very cool because I feel like there's still so much to be discovered about Kelpians, about interpersonal relationships between Kelpians. I think that would be very fun. So I think if I were going to be another race, I think I would definitely want to be one that is less well-studied. I think that's really, really fun and allows you as an actor to kind of build something new, which is very fun, especially as a Star Trek fan, to feel like you have that tiny, tiny little bit of influence over the series. I think that would be fun. 
Cool. Yeah, and Rin's role was obviously a very personal one because he'd been sort of outcast from his fellow, well, slaves. That's what they were. Call a spade a spade, you know. So getting into that headspace of being someone that had a job to do but was outcast from it for trying to do the right thing. What was that like trying to find that in your performance? It's an interesting question. I approached it in a couple of different ways. I think it was sort of a two-prong approach. The first thing I did was I had the gift of being able to watch a lot of playback. So essentially recording something, running over to the monitor and seeing how it looked. Because I feel like so much of the performance with a mask on is understanding how to convey the story while you're wearing the mask. The mask is not super responsive to subtle facial movements because it's really just a thick piece of rubber. So any kind of movement you're seeing with the mask, it has to be really big, really exaggerated. And sometimes that can come off like you're wearing a piece of plastic. And then on the flip side, if you do too little, it can look like somebody who is trapped in the mask, who is completely constricted and shut down by the mask. So I spent a lot of time watching. It's difficult when you're sort of somebody who is beaten down, somebody who's smaller, somebody who's contained to project those emotions through a mask because when you're doing a big fight sequence or when you're screaming, the mask will naturally be larger. But when you're smaller, there's very little space between doing something really small and something really big. There's not a lot of rooms for like intense facial subtlety. So my approach to that was to try and let the mask do a lot of work. It's such an expressive face that you can almost read a lot on it and to focus on my eyes because I feel like even though I'm wearing contacts, you're going to be able to read the emotions through the eyes and see the story on the face. That was kind of my hope. That was sort of the approach I took in an outside-in way, hoping that I wouldn't have to indicate too much of the frustration or sadness or loss that he's experiencing and just let the sort of roughness of the face direct that and then let my eyes sort of convey emotion. And the other approach I took was to really think about Jeffrey Combs' Shran. I watched all of his episodes again. And I think what he lays out is sort of an Andorian along with Susie Plaxon, Andorians who are confident, who are blustering, who are confrontational, who are big. They have big, big personalities. But I think what he does really well, and what I think differentiates Andorians from another species, is he also matches that with a really big sensitivity, a really big emotional well and emotional depth. When he has experiences in Enterprise, like when his mate dies or when his daughter is kidnapped, you really, really get a deep sense of his loss or anger or confusion or hurt. And I think what I wanted to do was sort of start Rin there. He had already had these moments where his confidence, his ability to confront a problem in Osira and believe in himself and rally people behind him. He had tried that and he had failed. So we're almost picking him up at his lowest point. And so I think what I'm trying to do is Rin's story as that of a redemption arc, as he gets back his confidence, gets back this other side of himself, this other side of Andorianness, whatever that means. That's my hope. We'll see if it comes through. But that was the approach anyway. Yeah, and obviously on a visual note, the fact that he has no antenna tells you a lot about how much he's lost. Great point. 
because we saw that with Shran as well when he had one cut off and he felt like he was humiliated by that. A lot of people are asking, is it going to grow back? Which we'll see, but I do think, you know, we're from Enterprise, we're over a thousand years in the future. They weren't cut off ceremoniously or with tact. (laughs) This villain Osira is obviously somebody who knows what she's doing. So that is not something that is going to just pop back. This is something that is very, very humiliating, degrading, and something that causes a lot of damage by somebody who really knows what they're doing and whose intent is to cause damage. Yeah, and that makes him very much a trauma survivor, which is incredibly powerful, especially with everything coming out in the news with people coming forward with certain things. I think it is a very important thing to play around with. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. So what was it like when you first saw yourself in the mirror after having been full makeup? Was it just so surreal? It was very, very weird. (laughs) It was awesome. I mean, it was incredible. I couldn't believe it. But it was also very weird because some of the early hairdo and beard stuff was very confusing. I had this weird mullet. I mean, it's kind of a mullet now, but it was almost like a faux hawk into a mullet Mm -hmm these braids on the side and then these mutton chops. So I was trying to figure out who this guy was because he sort of looked like a hillbilly rocker, but in blue with no antenna. I had read maybe the first half of the first script and I was like, who is this guy? What is his journey going to be? But I think they eventually sort of found the look for him. And I think once the look really settled, once the hair was kind of matted and dirty and just like falling on the sides and the beard was just sort of full... I think that's when it really settled in. I was like, oh, I'm starting to get this guy. It was just very, very exciting and very bizarre. And a lot of your scenes, or all your scenes really, were with powerhouses like David Ayala, Michelle Yeoh, and Sonequa Martin-Green. So what was it like having screen time with them? I was so lucky to get... I really spent most of my time with David, and I felt very lucky to get to work with David off the bat. This was his sixth episode of Star Trek. So he was still very new. I think he was probably even less than six. I don't really think he was in four, maybe five. So he was still very much finding his place or maybe not finding his place. It's obviously a very confident dude, but he's still working. You know, he's still trying to figure out who this guy is and what he's trying to do. And so I was very, very lucky how interested he was in creating a backstory for us, even just loosely, what we had been through, why we became friends, what we connected over, and how this moment was going to happen. So I was very lucky to get to really feel like it was okay to experiment. It was okay to really connect with the other actor in a deeper way than just a passing walk by. And I think it really let me relax a lot on set. So I, I was really grateful. And just just getting to be around I'd been around Sonequa so much and getting to be around her on set in costume in front of the camera, it was a really gratifying feeling to just feel like I was part of the team in another way. And she was obviously so supportive and so excited for me, which just felt amazing. And same with Michelle. I had been there and hung out with Michelle a ton and have been there, you know, at the very first premiere. And so she was just so excited to have me be there. And I was so excited to get to be in a scene with freaking Michelle Yeoh. (laughs) She does the little thing where she like flips me this tracker. And in the episode, it's a tiny, tiny moment. It's barely noticeable, but 
I just thought it was so cool. And she was just so relaxed and was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to include you in this. You're standing in the background, but you're in the scene. And I just felt very lucky to get to work with people who were excited for me and supportive of me because that isn't always the case. So when it does happen, especially on a big show like this, where the pressure is so high for everybody, it's just a really, really lucky experience. Yeah. And I don't know how much you can say about subsequent episodes. Do you get to work with a large amount of the cast? Is there any husband-wife scenes that you... Oh, well, what day is it? It's Monday. What day is this podcast going to come out? It'll probably be out either as the next episode airs or slightly after. After Thursday? Yeah, most likely. All right. Well, yeah, then people can look forward to me getting to work with some people who I feel very near and dear to. Let's just say that. (laughs) Just in case CBS come hunting for for you for saying so much. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, I understand the cloak of secrecy that surrounds Star Trek at the moment. I'm in the next episode. There's a still from the next episode. I get to work with a lot of different people, all of whom I'm excited to work with because everyone is so great and nice. And I've spent so much time with them outside of the set or even on set sitting and just watching while things are shooting. So it really felt like every time I get to work with anybody and I get to work with a couple of people. It was a real gift. And I'm most excited about, well, not most excited, but one of the most exciting things was the director I get to work with in 308. That's very, very exciting. Yeah, Jonathan Frakes. I don't know if you've heard of him. <laughs> yeah, well, his name may have come up once or twice. So. <laughs> What's it like being directed by him then since we're on that? It's amazing. He's a fantastic director. He understands acting so well and is able to talk to actors and he understands directing really, really well and is able to move quickly and efficiently and make shots that are good and be flexible if something's not working or be flexible if somebody has an idea. And he's just able to keep the mood on set like a party in the best way. You know, everyone is positive. Everyone is hopeful. Everyone is committed. Everyone is focused. And that's not always the case. And those things affect everybody's performance, both the actors and the people behind the camera. If somebody is working them like dogs and they're exhausted and they're just out of emotional or or mental energy, you know, the shots aren't going to look as good. They're not going to have as much time for as many takes and the acting might fall flat, but he really, really keeps the mood just buoyant in an amazing way. And he's just having fun. And I, I mean, you'll have to ask Jonathan, but I genuinely think he's really, really happy to be there and happy to get to be a part of the process and be a part of the franchise because I think it's probably, I'm speculating now, but I think it's probably a complex relationship to be connected to something in such an intense way and then to be on the outside of it and not really have a lot of control of it and not really know if you, you know, am I a part, am I in, am I out? And to be brought back into the fold in the way Alex Kurtzman has done I think probably meant a lot to him. Of course, I'm speculating. He could hate it, so don't quote me on it. But, <laughs> and I'm excited for other members of Star Trek who get to do that. I hope that that keeps happening. To bring people back in the fold, I think, is such a special, special thing. Yeah, but things like Lower Decks and the upcoming Prodigy as well, it seems like they're Prodigy, bringing yeah. everyone back. Yeah, I don't know why, but I really want LeVar Burton back. I think that he deserves a turn. That's my personal opinion. So I'm I'm stating it here. I hope LeVar is brought back into the fall because he's just such an absolute legend. I think it's time. I don't think you'll find much objection. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Picard's getting a second season, so Jordy might show up there. 
it's expansive. It's a big world. So there's a lot of places, I think for everyone, you know, it doesn't have to be exclusive. It doesn't just have to be these people and not those people. I think there's a lot of room for everyone. And I think Alex and Michelle and Heather, all of those people are thinking like that, which is amazing. Yeah. And it's a great start to your Star Trek career life as well. Getting to put on the makeup, getting to work with freaks. I mean, as a fan, it must've felt like a dream come true. I get to do all this stuff. I mean, just beyond, you know, I I feel like one of the fan, I don't know if it's like this for every fandom, but there is such a fan experience of this show of like really wanting to be on set, wanting to touch the set, wanting to interact with it, wanting to be around the cast and see how they interact and getting to do that as a fan before I was on the show. These sets are incredible. They are massive. I can walk through, through the Starship Discovery and get lost. lost on the ship before I turn around and I'm suddenly in the transporter room. I'm like, I don't know where I'm supposed to go now. And just getting to do that from the inside, from really doing it, it was just a completely surreal and amazing experience. And even if this is the only thing I ever get to do on Star Trek, I just consider myself so, so lucky to get to have done so much, to get to work with Jonathan, to get to get shot by a phaser to get beamed up. You know, I get to do all these things, which I don't think to other people, it's like, yeah, in the script, it says I get beamed up, but I'm like, but I get beamed up, you know? (laughs) Did you sit in the chair when they weren't filming? Yes. Oh, yes. I most certainly did. Yeah. David took a video of me sitting in the chair. It's deeply embarrassing, but God, do I love it. You have to do it though. I mean, you can't be there and not do it. All the time, all the time. We brought my mom up to set once and she sat in the chair and it was, she said it was a religious experience for her. <laughs> it was really, you know, going to Mecca for her. Yeah. When they get to do a strange new worlds, if you can maneuver yourself there, you get to sit in the Enterprise chair. Yeah, I mean, that would really be cool too. <laughs> <laughs> Watch this space. Yeah. So other than Star Trek, what other projects have you got coming up that you can talk about that you might be excited you know, about? Now, there's not a lot going on for me. COVID has sort of shut down my industry in a pretty big way. I was doing a play in New York that got canceled. Everything sort of has ground to a standstill. So at the moment, I don't really have anything going on. But I've got my D&D game, which hopefully will build into something else. I'm trying to think about, is there an online space to maybe play the Star Trek RPG game, Star Trek Adventures? So thinking about learning about that and just kind of... um enjoying what I can about the time away from the sort of rat race and hustle of the industry and and just, you know, taking the time to kind of refocus and think about other stuff and trying to build up some projects in the backlog for when stuff gets a little bit less dangerous is kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, hopefully your play or another play can start up again once it's all over. Someday, someday. Yeah. Hopefully not too far away. <laughs> I definitely hope so. So won't take up too much more of your time. Last question. Always ask this question. I always get some interesting answers. If you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? Oh, man. My usual go-to answer is mind reading, Betazoid power. <laughs> as long as I can turn the mind reading off, I think that's the kind of flip side, the curse of you know having to read everybody's mind. But maybe my superpower would just be to constantly being able to be a new character on Star Trek every week. <laughs> That's <laughs> superpower, but that would be fun. I would take that. So you want to be Jeffrey Combs, basically? Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I'll be Jeffrey Combs light. There's definitely only one Jeffrey Combs. There can never be another. But yes, I think Jeffrey Combs definitely, uh, 
I would be very, very honored and would consider it a superpower to kind of follow in his footsteps. Von Armstrong or someone like that. He was in a lot. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a history of it, you know, so uh, anything's possible. Cool. Well, thanks very much for appearing on the podcast and giving us some great insight into your wedding and the proposal and your time on Star Trek. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. and I'm sure people are going to love hearing what you've had to say. Well, thanks, Craig. I had a great time. I love talking about this stuff. I've just had so much fun and I'm happy to get to share it with everybody. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much. And good luck with all your future projects. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Noah Averback Katz. Thanks again to him for his time and his insight, and I wish him all the best in the future. Thanks also go to La Orchestra Cinematique for their version of the Discovery theme. If you enjoyed what you heard, then please do hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. iTunes users, please do leave us a star rating and a comment. If you want to discuss Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek in general, or anything else, then you can find us on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. As always, I hope you'll join us in the next Neil Before Pod. Thank you.